Welcome back to the Invictus Performance Podcast. This episode is a continuation of our conversation with Wayne and Robin, where we discuss a wide range of topics related to the sports science field, as well as some of their personal endeavors as coaches. From their shared vision of their company, APA Training Systems, to the various experiences that have helped them in their own development. Most importantly, the power in diversity. Wayne and Robin delve a little deeper into the sports science and technical essentials involved in building a high-performance culture to ensure robust athletic development, as well as an insight into their journey with the Indian hockey team, helping them win an Olympic medal after 41 years. Again, there's a lot for everyone in this episode, especially if you are from a sports science and performance background. Enjoy. So tell us about the company. What inspired that and what's the big vision for it? <laughs> yeah. So so is it, is it a secret? No, not no, a no, secret no. at all. No, 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 <laughs> definitely not a secret. We like I said, we kinda of open box with it, we're open book with everything. With APA what we what we thought was we got two individuals with very, very similar approaches, similar like minded approach to our training, our life philosophy and everything. And we felt that the information wasn't being shared by people and we kind of want to share information and we're not hiding it from anyone. We actually got told a few times, don't put all your information out there. And we're like, why? Because we want to share it and we want it available to whoever wants to listen. And that was the one thing, putting our minds together to get that information out there to whoever wanted to hear it. Um, And then also like any industry, I think, at some point, you need some sort of backup plan. Sure. Um, and API has never been something that we're going to make our primary focus. We always want to have our separate careers, but having something on the side that, um, like everyone says, have a side hustle, yeah. it, it's kind of what API is for us at the moment. And it's very young. Um, we've had one or two nice stints where, for example, pre-Olympics, it's been on the lowdown, but we consulted to Japan Rugby 7s for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was quite a nice stint for us because basically it was just a high-performance consulting and then we just chatted to their high-performance team how to set up high-performance structures. Um, and that, that, that's, re- that's where we want to go is share our experience, share our knowledge. And yes, sometimes you get paid for it, sometimes you don't. Um, and doing things like this and sharing our experiences with you guys, with whoever wants to listen, um, because I feel the industry's gone to a point where people are really scared to share their so-called new ideas. Um, and it's really unfortunate because I don't think any idea is new anymore. And if you've got something novel, then, well, you must be really good because <laughs> it's all out there. I think a big where like, the industry was, and I think a lot of it is changing globally as well with people suddenly turning heads, uh, looking at social media as a way to get some amount of knowledge, some inspiration, concepts, principles, and then it leads out to videos and it leads out to books and etc. But a lot of that is changing because of the insecurity and earlier knowledge was, was, was difficult to find and you needed a mentor and, and you needed need need like support towards a yeah. mentor to be able to advance in your career. But the entire world is library to access yeah, yeah. The entire world is open. Right? <laughs> Knowledge is no yeah, longer. Exactly. I mean, you can just type Google what you exactly. want, and you will find tons yeah. of information. The problem is not really finding the information. Serving the information. The problem is how much will you be able to digest, yeah. and how much of it will be able to connect the dots that form the information that you get. Yeah. 
And I think that's also like something that we really wanted to bring to the forefront is that we really like the research behind the things, but we also realist in understanding that practice moves pretty fast and um, research probably lags behind quite a bit. Um, so a lot of things that we do and try are not always 100% research-based, um, but they practice-based and they practice-proven, if I can say that. Um, and we just want to share it with whoever wants to yeah. listen. Yeah. I think it was just, um, it was bringing <coughs> the sort of the collective experience together and trying to, you know, have a, share a unified message effectively. So um, I think that's where I actually remember where we first started talking about it. It was like, well, he's doing this, I'm doing this, and we're trying to share things. Why don't we just combine it together? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's like, there's power in diversity. So at that stage, I was in rugby, he was in China. Yeah. So we had quite a, like, at that stage, a unique experience to share. Yeah. Um, and then I think also just our nature is, like, we want to try and help as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and we feel that through a platform like APA, we can probably reach more people um, than if we maybe on an individual basis. Um, so I think that's, yeah, primarily the sort yeah. of the basis or the formation of APA. Um, and going forward, I think, yeah, like I said, I think it's... we. We're trying to reach as many people as possible to try and give them um, the sort of the highest quality practice um, at a very reasonable sort of, you know, it's, our intention is not really to make money from it. Our intention is to try and give someone the best opportunity to right. achieve success or achieve their potential. Um, and I think, yeah, that's sort of what drives us as API, I think. It's, yeah, I think the, if you look at your, the, like the YouTube channel that you guys have, there's like plenty of stuff which you guys have classified in terms of even just things from, from recovery's perspective, from uh, looking at just exercise selection perspective, looking at uh, kind of mobility sequences and things like that, which people can just plug and play, which I think is uh, can be useful for uh, multiple people in different sports, not just uh, hockey or anything else. It's individual sports as well. Yeah, um, and if you look at social media, Instagrams. I see that there is also a lot of educational elements also, which your uh, personal ones as well as the APA one that seems to be a lot of the focus. I think that's how we connected also. Yeah. <laughs> Just reached yeah. out to you guys on uh, Instagram and said, okay, let's get in touch. And it's something we need to push more and, and we, we always speak about it, but I think these five years has been a real fo focus period for us where we really wanted to achieve these goals, not only for ourselves, but more for the team. Um, and no matter which environment you go, you want to achieve your personal goals as well. And going to these different tournaments was one of our goals as well. So, and API had to take a bit of a back seat for that to happen. Um, and now we just feel like, hey, there's an opportunity with this experience we got from Olympic Games and all the different tournaments we played to share those with other people. So, yeah. So, what, what next? What next for <laughs> you guys? <laughs> That's a big question at the moment. I think... Um, yeah, there's a lot of excitement and I think more so around the opportunity or possibility of what could happen. Right. Um, it's sort of, um, yeah, it's an opportunity for us to put a lot more time into APA yeah. um, and to grow that sort of thing. So, um, like I said, I mean, we want to try and just create a brand that's, you know, big enough and reliable enough to help as many people as possible. Awesome. Um, so I think that's kind of, I mean, we're, personally, and I think when obviously as well, we want to stay in high performance sport. 
Um, and that's sort of the, the focus of APA. It's sort of, you know, getting people to become high performers and be sustained high performers, I think. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're ready to help and anyone that's, you know, willing or that wants to get involved. So any sport, it doesn't really matter to yeah. us. It's, um, I'm sure we'll be in touch with you guys for a lot of it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's looking at, it's lovely to see where you guys came from five years ago when we first met to now. Like, clearly, so many things have changed. Uh, yeah, it's you know, in 2018 or 2018, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then uh, just to see the the changes in personality, the changes in, uh, in the approaches to training, in the changes in how you look at the sport of hockey, but also look at the, the like a much higher purpose in terms of what. Uh, what it, what all this entails exactly? Yeah, so that, that was that was one of our drives for the decision on resigning and moving on sure. individually. Um, for us, is that okay? We've been in hockey for five years, and yeah. I want to diversify a little bit, whether it is in another sport sure. or multiple sports, whatever it might be. Um, I don't, I don't want to be too restricted. I want to be able to again help as many athletes that are out there as possible that want help or organizations and also education on strength conditioning coaches out there I think is really big um, I think a lot of people have a misconception of what it might be and what it is mm-hmm. um, and yeah I think everyone wants this best practice but best practice is very very different in every single environment that you right. work in um, so understanding how to adapt I think once you've got a university degree it doesn't make you an SNC coach until you actually can go out there and apply what you've done in multiple environments and I think that's what India's really taught me is chaotic environment and applying the best practice possible in that environment for those athletes at that time. Okay. Um, so yeah. You plan to adapt. Exactly, 100%. <laughs> the entire planning uh, is planning to adapt. Everything is going to change. I, I guess if you figure out some heuristics to kind of deal with a chaotic environment actually yeah. uh, benefit from a chaotic exactly, environment. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And a chaotic environment is very beneficial because it teaches you not only about your actual working environment, but it teaches you about yourself and how you handle that pressure, how you handle that stress. Because it is it is a pressurized environment because you're expected to perform at every single tournament. And if you're not winning, there's a lot of questions that are arisen around that. Um, but also, you got to have a happy face every day for the athletes. you got to be bringing the energy. You could be having so many personal issues, but by the time you get to the gym session, you've got to put all that behind you because you've got a job to do there. And I think as young SNCs and um, performance coach or everyone call, call the position, have to learn that because I've seen it where a lot of that influences their training, their, 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 their practice. Um, but unfortunately, once you you got you to bring the energy for every, your athlete every single day. Um, and it's tough, um, especially in this COVID time, it was really tough. Yeah. Um, but in the end, you find ways of coping. So tell me, um, on this topic of specialization in, in one sport as a, early on as, in, as an SNC coach versus someone who looks at looking at working with multiple sports, what's your take on that? In, you know, on sticking the benefits of really sticking to one sport versus the benefit of taking to multiple different sports or just multiple sports. I think, well, both of us came through sort of a system where we were exposed to everything. Like I had a mountaineer and I had an ice skater and I had a judo person who wanted like it. Like that was just the diversity of the top athlete that we were working with. And I think, um, I think it's important. I think it just gives you that sort of um, broad sense of, you know, movement. Yeah, movement and understanding of, what different requirements are. I think 
it's like this, it's just a general debate around being a generalist or a specialist. So I personally, I think it's beneficial. I think it's a good way to go. Um, it just gives you, you know, a greater sense or a broader sense of, you just got more experience, I think. There's um, Power and Diversity. <laughs> it's a book that I read, um, which is brilliant. And it just talks about the power of diversity. The more diverse you are in terms of your experiences, your culture, your knowledge, your ex- whatever it is, um, generally you've got more to offer. I think a bitter pull, bitter pull to swallow for many people is believing that their sport's very different to every other sport. Right. I, I think every coach wants to believe their sport is very unique and this and that and whatever it might be. But in the end, when it comes to what we need to do as performance coaches, not much varies Absolutely. altogether yeah. from yeah. sport to sport, and especially in team sports and stick and ball sports or whatever it might be. Um, I think it's uh, something people really have to understand that your sport is not as different as what you think it might be. Um, And that becomes really tough for coaches because it's a bit of an ego thing and um, and even even for S&C coaches, like everyone, like especially the specialists in fields are like, yeah, but my sport, X and Y, like, okay. It's also a lot because uh, a lot of the coaches in India were ex-athletes, they were players. Yeah. So there is the, the importance that is given to that particular coach because the game he's played. Exactly. Whereas the angle which we come from is more about, I mean, we're looking at as long as he's got two two hands, two legs, one head and a coat, move around in a hip and, and hips. There's still a lot of similarities in the kinematics that are there in moving and each athlete within the sport itself is different. So they're going to still move differently. So the advantage of working with athletes from different sports is you learn how to read the player you also learn how to program slightly differently for them based on their body, their body type. Exactly. So it's it's, it's a, a longer route. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but it, the, 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 the ascent is higher. It, it comes down to the debates I have with many physios often. So if I offend anyone, I apologize. But like every sport has its um, bilateral deficits. Absolutely. And all the time what we're trying to do is correct these so-called bilateral deficits in training. But in the end, for hockey, for example, um, you're going to have these bilateral deficits, especially, say, for example, in posture. They're going to have a kafotic posture because that's what they require in their sport. And now, yeah, you're trying to fix it because they want the perfect posture. It's going to affect their sport negatively in the end. So I think you have to be realistic about what is happening in the sport and what you want to so-called fix. Um, and, and I think that, that that's where the sports aren't very different. I think the, the, these, these differences do occur in sports, but as soon as we try to fix what, yeah. we think should be fixed what the perfect athlete should look like we start breaking athletes that way um, 100% because everyone moves different and I think um, there was analysis Dan Pratt did on Paul, Paul Lewis and all these runners when they've yeah. done sprinting and some of them are chaotic when they're sprinting yeah. but yeah. they're still running sub 10s yeah. so why are you going to change these mechanics because you want to prevent injuries from occurring and make it slow exactly they talk about again bandwidths of Exactly. How much deviation they can have from a thing. If it's beyond a certain bandwidth where it maybe affects mm. them to an injury risk, then you may look at it. 100%. But then but some things might if actually. If they're able to tolerate it, would you still yeah. change it? And, and the, the question is again uh, is it actually an adaptation for the sport? Like you said, the kyphotic posture which you have for hockey, you bend over yeah. most of the time trying to uh, work with the ball. So if uh, a kyphotic posture is going to help you to do that, um, that might help. And again, like you said, it comes down to bandwidth. If someone's yeah. got a hunchback, it's a different story. Yeah. But like, there's certain deviations that athletes need in their sport 
um, whatever it might be. You look at Nadal in tennis, you've got one giant arm, one yeah. small arm. <laughs> yeah. That's going to happen. Yeah. And I think we have to be realistic of what we want to so-called fix and what we believe is a perfect athlete out there. So Do we even need to fix it? That's the question. That's, 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 that's the, question. the golden question. And I would probably say 99% of the time, probably no. And the yeah. problem is when you start fixing these things that we don't need to fix and just to look a little bit smart, um, we start breaking athletes. Yeah. I mean, um, rather work around that individual. And that's where the individualization comes in again. Is that, yeah. okay, how can we work around these differences that this athlete has um, to make her better or him better or whatever it might be? Sorry, just going back to the original question, I think um, what I've quite liked about having worked in different sports um, is you get an idea of how different sports do things and you can bring certain things from those sports into something. So like we've specialized in hockey now and we come in from an outsider's view and we can see things that, you know, other people that have been involved in hockey don't actually know that they're doing just because it's part of tradition. Well, they're doing it because they, that's how it's always been done. Right. Um, so I think it gives you the opportunity to sort of look at it from a different perspective and you can say, well, geez, this really worked well in rugby. Um, how can we sort of adapt it and, and use it in hockey to benefit hockey preparation? Or you can look at if you've been involved in sprinting track and field, like how can you bring elements of that into hockey preparation? So I think if you're not exposed to those type of sports, you, you're not going to really be able to bring it into something that you eventually specialize in. The novelty factor and also, I mean, it does bring a lot of training freshness. Yeah, for sure. Uh, otherwise, it's just a lot of repetitive mundane where they switch off They switch off and it's a mechanical process. So if you look at your guys' setup, like yeah. you guys are working with multiple different athletes, ages, genders, so, and I'm sure you can steal ideas from each person that you're working with. So a lot of the way we function is that we all have our individual understanding and perspectives and we encourage everyone to have their own perspective. So a lot of it is uh, explore, experiment, see what works. And once that's done, everyone's always discussing because we, I mean, yeah. we have we run a tight team. Everyone's always discussing. Uh, we're always hanging out together. So a lot of it revolves around different concepts. So if I'm working on a concept and... At this point, we're kind of doing mishmashes of different concepts yeah. that we've worked and different people we follow, uh, different podcasts that we listen to. All of it comes and starts coming. So now we're at a place where we're trying each other's program, but we're also looking at someone else's program. And rather than it being me just learning from my experience, I learn from everyone's experience that is there on different concepts and different modalities they're using, what are the metrics they're measuring, and everything comes. So it's more of a a group thinking kind of philosophy but everyone's got their own individuality so that we learn from each other uh, and that's what actually really helped us transcend keep it fresh handle a wide variety of athletes age groups non-athletes uh, even in terms of physiotherapy like the way we do physiotherapy is i would say very different from the way it's done traditionally a lot of us is exercise based right so as soon as we get them pain freeze, how quickly can we look at tissue, we look at physiology, we look at the psychology of the athlete, uh, what are the missing elements that need to, so the benefit of working in this kind of separate, like when I zoom out a little bit, we've got a lot more eyes looking for patterns that are there uh, in their performance, in their drawbacks, in their behavior. And now when you're working here, everyone's kind of talking the same language to you. You go to the nutritionist. And she's talking certain things to you, but everyone's already discussed what is the approach that we need to take with this particular athlete to be able to get them 
in the shortest amount of time to ground zero and then the actual training begins so a lot of the athletes that we train with are not really experienced right we have do have the whole experience part of it which is say around 20 25% where we're dealing with elite athletes yeah. and who have got four or five years plus of experience uh, but a lot of the others is actually building them to a point where they're actually able to train at a high level and and the navigation between the different associations right yeah. the different tournament schedules uh, every sport is different every sport has different kind of coaches different technical coaches uh the food habits of everyone different households so it's a lot of customization that we have to do for each yeah. person uh but again now we're looking at the way to move forward would be again to look at talent pools that are younger but to be for us to be able to group them together and bring them up in a certain philosophy that is generally evolving so, i think i think one of the the common kind of philosophies that seems aligned with the invictus and api also is the educational element which yeah. is uh one is of course sharing within the group and now yeah. trying as much as you can to share outside the group as well and collaborate with other people as much yeah. as possible and i think that's something that uh, i think that's that's one place where we've done a really poor job of as a company is the way the way we've been actually be able to put out the information that you know that we sh- we may try to make available a lot of it is discussed and when you know social media was is an alien beast to us uh to like we had it running but you know it's it's kind of a passive thing that you need to have yeah but we've not really utilized it fully as a as a tool yeah. uh and this is something that we're really looking forward to is to be able to put out more quality content out there but also basically open a platform where you can discuss things yeah, sure. right without necessarily feeling uh insecure about okay this person's taking this I mean, let's open things up like really open things up let's make everything available to everyone it's still a big enough industry where everyone needs to collaborate there's a need for it not necessarily a luxury uh and i think the health system will evolve from the learnings that people like all of us and a lot more people in the world that are looking at performance as a new way of living and that will at some point the learning of it will trickle down to the masses yeah and this is the true reach of yeah. the sports industry when it comes to our profession yeah right the kind of impact that we can have in the health industry per se right and it's also partly stuck in tradition so i think i think on those lines um do do you all have any specific things or have you all had you had a lot of mentors i'm sure along the way um education seems to be something a big focus for a lot of all uh maybe if you can speak a little bit more about that in terms of people who've had large impact of on our life systems that have uh, that you've learned a lot from and how you've kind of gone along to develop those if, if there are um any i'm sure i'm sure like quite a few um i think uh and I'm, i mean i'm still on the process of learning it's like um when i was when you first into this into the sort of industry it's like jesus there's so much information yeah um, <laughs> like oh, you should really follow it type of thing and you're trying to you know use something from everyone so um and especially now with technology and the internet you've got access to everyone so it's it's yeah. quite difficult but i think over time you just refine things and you sort of become comfortable in the knowledge that you know um the other thing is the you know the the more and more you become involved in the industry the less and less you actually know yeah <laughs> because you're getting exposed to more and you're getting challenged in different environments so yeah i think it's just trying to i don't really know i think for me it's i've latched onto the triphasic system 
um, re more recently yeah. in terms of the last couple of years. Um, and I just like sort of the structure that it gives. Um, and then trying to use the bonded truck system as well, just yeah. to put it into like a classification. In um, terms of method. the assessing part of it and to be able to repeat the success that you have on yeah. frequency. I, I think it's talking about excellence classification. Are you talking about the GP, SP? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, you can apply it to almost anything. It's mm -hmm. like exercise selection, but then in terms of your yeah. training phases and... Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm still on a massive learning. I don't think... I know just yet, like right. I'm, you, there's just so much, so you're still trying different things. But I think if I had to sort of narrow it down, it's like it's a triphasic based program using Bondichuk for the classification. Mm -hmm. um, but then you've got elements of like tactical periodization as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a process. But I, if I had to say like those things that I'm following, that's probably. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a good question. We're coming back to like what Rob was saying earlier. It's all like like Dunning Kruger effect. Like I, was, I feel I've yeah. been in the industry long enough now, but I still feel like I know nothing. Right. Um, so like it's just that continuous hunger to learn and continuous hunger to see what is out there. Um, I feel I've got a system that I I like to follow. Um, it's not no specific name to it or anything, but I think you also have to depend depends on what sport you're involved with. So we were talking about Bondachak earlier yeah. being a closed sport because it's throwing base. And, yeah. like, and I think yeah. it's it's easier to develop a system in those sort of sports where it's hockey, like Rob was saying, is that you have to use multiple elements mm -hmm. of different systems to get um, results. Yeah. Um, and like the multi mechanical model is something we really do follow quite closely, mm -hmm. or I follow quite closely. And then, um, depending on where we are in the season, is what sort of um, strength and conditioning that we'll implement, whether it's triphasic, whether it's um, French contrast, or whatever it might be at that I, I phase. I see you using a lot of the French parts, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I, I quite like it, especially for female athletes because I feel they, the neurological system detrains quick, quite quickly so I do try to um, uh, microdose it quite a lot mm -hmm. um, and so yeah so again it depends on where I am in the phase so the triphasic probably does form quite a big part of it um, but what I find in hockey players and female hockey players the eccentric phase is very difficult for me because they can't load as much and mm -hmm. it also depends on what equipment you got available yeah. so if you don't have power racks and it becomes a little bit more difficult for female athletes to do those sort of things um, but basically the program is based on the tier system so very mm -hmm. simple um, and I, I don't know if I can really claim it as the tier system but yeah some, some sort of principle like that where you got your primary lifts and whatever it might be um, and that will change throughout the season, wherever, depending where we go. Um, I do like a lot of contrast training, um, and I think it's really beneficial for athletes that need to be explosive and need to be um, fast on the pitch. Um, and I found that it really helped our players because they hadn't been exposed to that before. Right. So you don't lose that strength element, um, but you're still exposing it to the hybridistic type movement patterns as well. Uh, so no one system as such and I think again it comes down to the sport that you know, be involved in so if you're in a mm -hmm. team sport rugby, hockey or um, soccer whatever it might be you, I think you have to adapt everything according to the season and you can probably steal different um, aspects of it and in our role it's also a little bit different to a role that you'd be in maybe in America where you're a strength coach so you're a strength coach whereas mm -hmm. us we from the strength training to the conditioning to final phase rehab um, to data collection to monitoring, whatever it might be. So you're a one-man show trying to manage, manage everything. everything. 
um, and then you need to marry that all together. So I think if you stuck to one system, uh, I think it becomes quite difficult. Quite difficult yeah. The other thing with um, hockey preparation is that because it's such a physically demanding sport, we need pretty much majority of all your physical, your like physiological systems going. It's like mm -hmm. trying to integrate those, so like using the virtual integration approach, like you're training everything almost all the time oh, with just a different yeah. sort of um, amounts. I think that's quite an important part of it. There's no time when you can kind of know or not do speed or no, not exactly. do plyometrics yeah, or some, some element yeah. of it is always in the program. And that's why, I mean, it's that's why I quite like the Bondichuk classification mm -hmm. because the basic principle is that you are training everything all the time, but just at different volumes right. and yeah. intensities. Um, and it's similar to the tier system. The tier system was coined by Strength Coach in America where it's basically the same thing, you're just working on a rotation of exercises through the week and each block has got a different emphasis. So, um, yeah. So how much of the training was uh, actually that you had to, to modify around the, the flexion nature of uh, hockey? Did you do a lot of squat, squatting running and did you employ a lot of that? Or how did you go about it? Was it specifically done in the squat position or bent over running? Or a lot of it was straight running or did you change that as part of the adaptation? I mean, as the part of the progression for running. We, we played hockey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, no, but it's, it's 100% no, true. For the, for the speed yeah. Yeah. Like without, yeah. without... No, 100%. So that's where the, the multi-mechanical model comes in. So like, if we need to learn how to change direction, the best place to do it is going to be in the match itself. Right. So by manipulating the size of the game, the number of players and the type of game you're playing, the duration, all that sure. sort of thing, you get that stimulus as well as you get that energy system development that you can get. And then for the speed game, you also just change it. You make it longer, different size games. Sure. But again, we still um, microdose speed elements into it right. and program it over time. A large amount of that, and that's why I quite like the French contrast or the um, complex type stuff because you get that speed stimulus from it. Mm -hmm. It's not running specifically, but yeah. also the amount of running the players do on a weekly basis. You really got to be careful on how much exposure they get to more running. Sure. Um, so, like the sprint work and all that will be part of pretty much every warm up, anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how we program or general out program it in is ensuring that they get those allocations. So we look at, for example, I would want anywhere between 14 to 16 exposures of 95% max velocity in a week. And that's more just from a robustness type um, exposure. Okay. Um, but yeah, so uh, and hockey is one, it's very similar to soccer where you get a lot of your conditioning out of games. Mm -hmm. um, but I think hockey has moved quite quickly and understood that you need a balance between the two, well, at least in our system, whereas I think soccer is a lot more on-field conditioning based. I think maybe uh, along those lines, uh, one of the things that you all have been uh, really uh, doing this whole five years in, in India is collecting a lot of data, having multiple data points for both the Indian uh, men's and women's teams. Uh, but data which is not applicable is not really useful. So um, I just wanted to get your perspectives on how did you choose what what is really important and how did you sift out what is the data that's important and how did you utilize that for training or monitoring or whatever else that uh, you want to use it for? Um, yeah, so my philosophy is click broad report narrow. So I click as much data as I possibly can but coaches don't actually care about how much data you can collect. They care about certain specifics. So I think the first thing for us was understanding what the coach wanted. Yeah. 
And for example, uh, my coach loved having one variable that you could see what is the intensity of that. So you look at um, different data points and you compare training to match data and you just get a percentage of intensity for that session. And if I could give him that number every day, very, very happy because then you can see, okay, today we planned a high intensity session. Did we get high intensity? We were 5%, 10%, 20% above match intensity. And that, that's all he really wanted to see or, and he really liked that sort of thing. So I could narrow it down to one variable for him. But then I wanted to see more. So on, on my report, I'd have a whole lot of data and a lot of things that we're looking at specifically. But I'd make sure that was emphasized for them because that's what they wanted to see. That's what they value. Exactly. Um, then from a testing perspective, it's, I think testing is an interesting one because Rob and I have been speaking about it a lot and how we want to change our approach to testing mm -hmm. i think sometimes we over test and actually that data we get we don't actually it's not really usable yeah. um especially in elite sport where they okay most of the athletes have been training for a long period of time and they got a decent base um so how to use that data better so for example i know now from some of the, the from that study you spoke about is that uh, meters per minute is probably the biggest predictor of match output um, and then a correlation with that and a was a 2.4 kilometer run and the yo-yo test would be pretty high yeah um so okay we don't need to do both we know that those two are going to predict match performance of that so let's eliminate one and only use one of those um i think sometimes we like okay we want to test the aerobic system anaerobic system on the sprint <laughs> yeah, on the speed and like we've moved away completely from sprint testing as such we just okay. use max velocity from the gps within okay. small sided games and sure. whatever in the matches that we get and if we're seeing that match velocity is actually increasing that's actually the most important thing whether someone does three seconds in a 20 meter or 40 meter or whatever it might be um, is actually irrelevant and what i found with my players is to motivate them to give 100 percent in those sprint efforts um is very difficult, whereas when they're on the pitch, they don't even think about it, they're gonna sprint maximally. So if we see match, match max velocity increase, then we know, okay, we've actually improved yeah. that. Because you, um, you don't need to drive intent. No, I don't have to drive intent. Um, the ball's there, they're, doing, they're just doing their normal thing. Um, so I think that's what testing, and I think testing is important to get a snapshot of where they're at at different sure. points in time. What I found really important for our, our players is blood profiles. And that was really important for me because there are certain parameters that we found that are really low in Indian female athletes. Mm -hmm. so you guys will know vitamin D, yeah. calcium, iron are real big problems. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as vitamin D is not dealt with, I'm not going to get the adaptations <laughs> I require. You, you um, can't, you, if you're not healthy, you can't be. Exactly. So we need, and it, that took a long time to get right. Um, so I think those sort of parameters are really important. In the beginning, we did do some VO2 max testing, but I eventually scrapped that because it, it doesn't help me. I can't prescribe from that. So, and that's another thing. Whatever testing you're doing, you need to be able to use it to prescribe, to prescribe yeah. whatever you're doing in the gym or whatever it might be. Um, so that's why we looked at different options where we quite like something called a quadrant system where we got falling into the Z scores and then it will fall into different quadrants um, and identifying certain profiles for athletes. Yeah. I think... Um, over time, what's made a big difference is just making the data that we get more actionable. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, we, I mean, we're collecting huge amounts of data, reporting on a few, but the data that we're, that we're reporting on needs to be more actionable. So, I mean, obviously, when you're young and you're first starting out, you're just collecting data and you're trying to report it for the sake of reporting. But I think um, what I've really tried to do is just try and make that data a lot more actionable. So... And a really good example, it's simple, but the quadrant system is, I find, brilliant because it's based off a lot of data. It 
it's pretty robust in that mm -hmm. sense. Um, and it seems to be pretty sensitive as well. It's like if an individual is, is so it's taking a lot of data points, but it's reflecting only one data point. So it's easy to see as well. It's like, okay, well, he's falling over here today. If he's in there, that means a certain thing. So it's easy for them, for the players to understand. It's easy for the coaches to understand. We've got the holistic understanding because we've got all the other data, but we, you know what I mean? So, yeah, testing is a difficult one. I think for us also, we've only been one person in a huge group mm. of players for a long period of time. So it's very difficult to be like consistently testing because it takes up a lot of time. Um, so I think we've tried to narrow it down. And actually, we were chatting a couple of weeks ago where we narrowed it down, I think, to just four tests. Mm. Um physical tests, yeah. excluding the blood testing and all that sort of stuff. But there were four specific tests that we wanted to look at, which we thought we could then um, visualize and which could then guide our program to actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't implemented it yet because we've decided to move on. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm sure that that's, that's a big moral learning. But uh, it looks like a lot of your testing also is kind of embedded testing, which means just within the training, you're collecting that data, which gives you informs what decisions you're going to make for the next cycle or the next session or even that same session. For sure. Um, I mean, each session is tracked, so individuals are recording what they're lifting at what speeds they're lifting and stuff as well. So, um, like, yeah, I don't do lower limb strength testing. I mm. just monitor them over a period of time. Sure. If I can see that they're lifting a heavier weight at a higher velocity, it means that they've got stronger and more powerful. So, so what do you use to measure velocity? Uh, push bands. Push bands, okay. okay. Nothing fancy, unfortunately. No, that's what we yeah. use. <laughs> it works. Anyway, that's that's yeah, what exactly. we use as well. That's why I asked you guys. Most affordable one for us because we had to buy this also. Um, but yeah. So. And uh, in terms of the quadrant system, could you elaborate a little bit more about that? Because it seems like to be a favorite for the two of you. <laughs> it was something that I kind of stumbled upon during lockdown in, in the sense of like how we can actually use the quadrant system to represent data. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I pretty much just try to put all my data into quadrant systems because I feel like it's just an easy way to represent data and, you know, understand it. Um, so it's basically taking, you need two variables, um, worked out as a Z-score. So to have a Z-score, you need a number of data points um, with a standard deviation. So it's fairly sort of robust in that sense. Um, and it takes two variables and it gives you one sort of output. So Mm -hmm. um, the nice part about it is, is that you can then um, categorize people. So based on where they fall, you can then make um, sort of an assumption of what they need to do based on where they're falling. Um, yeah, they, I mean, there's there's a book that's recently come out by a guy in America, Daniel Bove, I think, who's, who's yeah. written a, a book on the quadrant system and more from a point of view of, I think, planning your training week. So, mm -hmm. um, But we've up until now, just used it to represent data. Is there a book that you recommend for it? Say again, sorry. Is there a book that you recommend? Uh, yeah, I haven't managed to get it yet, but what I've read about it and sort of the things that I've seen, it looks pretty, it looks oh, useful, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, he's, he's in the basketball setting, so I think it's, mm. uh, what he was finding is that, obviously, because their demands are so high from a travel perspective and a performance perspective, he needed a system to try and bring everything together to make decisions easier. Right. Um, and he's used the quadrant system. So I can't comment too much because I haven't read the book. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, no, I think that's, and like Rob says, it can be any two variables. So a common ones that we'll track is session RP and player load. So you mm -hmm. get the subjective and the objective again. And then you'll see like 
if there's a mismatch between the two. So if someone's going to have a really easy session but rated a very high RPE, they're going to right. fall into a quadrant where we call it vulnerable or something to that effect. Sure. Um, and then we'll have specific actionables underneath that. So, okay, so he's found it hard, um, but it was actually a very easy session. So then we have a discussion with the coach, like, look, okay, there is something going on there. And then we have to look at the probably the wellness data and say, okay, sleep and recovery. So if the sleep's poor and the recovery's poor, and then they're in the vulnerable, and then we're okay. That's that's what yeah. we need to fix. But if their sleep's good, um, their recovery's good, but they're still finding session hard, then we're probably reaching that overtraining, over overreaching right. type type thing. So I think that's that's the nice thing. It's a nice snapshot, and you can just see what's happening very quickly with these variables, and then you've got those specific actionables to try and correct that um, as much as possible. What I quite like with it as well is like it, so it gives you a team trend. So you can see is the team trending towards the quadrant that we expect them to trend towards. Mm -hmm. So like if we've had a low day, uh, we then need to kind of expect them to be trending towards the ready block the next day because you know we that's the adaptation that we expect. So if we're not getting that adaptation, we can see that trend in the, from the from the data, and then we can then obviously make decisions again yeah. based on. Um, are we actually prescribing the right type of training or not? So um, I've quite I've tried to sort of mix, sort of match it up to our the horizontal variation across the week. Sure. So obviously you have a tough session, a tough day. Um, our day, our wellness data the next day is going to be trending towards the challenge block. Right. Um, but then after a low day and a rest day, is that data then trending towards the readiness the ready yeah. block? So. It's just quite nice to see the trends across the week as well. You can see yeah. the data sort of moving. And in the long term, and if you see if there's any anomaly for one particular person, they immediately stand up. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's just an example of one. So the green circle is just one standard deviation off of the, well, just one standard deviation. Mm -hmm. So generally, if they're in that green circle, we don't really worry about it too much. But as soon as they start moving past that mm -hmm. one standard deviation across the average, then it's... Um, that's yeah, then, then we start looking into it a little bit more. Okay. Um, I mean, and you can throw any variables in there, which is quite nice. You can look at, so like your wellness stuff, like Wayne mentioned, you can look at your testing data. So one thing we were looking at is just the sim like your simple strength versus counter movement jump type of thing. And then, and then um, classifying them in terms of do they need more strength-based stuff, mm -hmm. do they need more velocity-based stuff. Um, you can do it on a more regular basis with your jump profiling yeah, exactly. so looking at your counter movement and your RSI jumps and then um, trying to program accordingly like are they you know what I mean so it's I find it a good sort of decision making matrix as well but it's quite a bit of data process for 66 players and yeah so we I didn't use this for juniors at all no uh -huh. chance uh, only for the main players we'd use it well I used it and um, and again, it just helps you to understand where your players are at, what you need to do, what are the yeah. actionables. Um, and like Rob said, I think what our, our plan was for testing is trying to get it down as simple as that. Yeah. Um, and then you'll be able to create actionables from, from, from that. Uh, with jump data, it's really easy because we get multiple jump data. And yeah. I think what I did find part of the, my study was is that there was definitely an inverse relationship between RSI and counter movement jump. Yeah. So as soon as counter movement jump doesn't mean that RSI is going to go up and they, the relationship between wellness and those two variables also completely well, okay. wouldn't follow what you would think it would follow. Mm -hmm. um, and so what basically RSI is a readiness score. Yeah, as a readiness score, same with counter movement sure. jump and again using a standard deviation or a Z score to see where they're falling into. 
And and what I what we found interesting with hockey is on the back to back games, generally the second game the next day, they actually perform better. It's mm-hmm. almost like it seems like a potentiation mm-hmm. effect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. where we would expect it to go down. Um, what I did find though is with counter movement, Japanese I some most of the time with my faster players, where as soon as they PB'd or did really well on those, their high speed running would be um, a little bit higher. The difficult part with making these inferences with any sport, I think, is that depending on which team you play against and what tactics you're using in that game. So say, for example, you've got a really good RSI, very good counter-movement jump, but then you start playing half-court on yeah. the pitch. You're never going to get very much high-speed running because sure. you're playing a defensive game. Um, so you have to take the tactics into consideration mm-hmm. with the outputs. And like Rob said right in the beginning is that when we were defending, when we are defending a lot, you'll see the change of direction, everything's sky high. When you're playing really poorly, you've got a lot of counter counter um, attacks, you've got to mm-hmm. really regain a lot, and then the outputs are crazy. It's a good conditioning session in mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. Um, but when you really got the um, game under control, then the outputs are generally pretty sure. pretty low compared to what it would be if you're getting under a lot more pressure. Yeah, so basically, it's the difference between I think they had a stat where they were looking at how much the experienced uh, footballers ran uh, yeah. as opposed to the inexperienced footballers and they saw that they ran way less but the impactful minutes in terms yeah. of were way, was way more. So experienced players were a lot more efficient, a lot more tactical. It, it's the time they spend not moving or not moving in, in terms of the game is where a lot of the strategic positioning, they're reading the game, it's all the, all the things that they do off the ball. Yeah. Understanding yeah. where to be at the right time. Exactly. I always call them the slowest, fastest players because tactically they're just so aware. Yeah. They just know, okay, I need to be there and they're there. And they don't need to be the best athletes, but they're tactically so good. Yeah. Um, so that's the whole game intelligent exactly. intelligence yeah. aspect. Right? And I think that's also where they come back to individualization. That's where that comes in because I have to know that certain players will never be the best athletes in my team. But tactically, they are so good that yeah. they don't actually have to be. Absolutely. Um, but it's convincing other people that that is also the case because that's what testing does also is exposes those players a little bit and um, so that's what you also have to be quite open discussion in your team uh, management system also and understanding that okay look player x doesn't need to be that fit or that fast because tactically he or she is just so good yeah in fact like a lot of time what we also notice is that a lot of the game starts suffering the moment you start pushing for uh, a higher value in terms of physical performance. Yeah. They're actually the game actually deteriorates. Yeah. Right? Uh, then they work on the fact that they're more cognitively cognitively aware, and if you try to up the up their game speed, the entire game starts going down. So managing their states of mind and, and what what kind of state uh, of fatigue or non-fatigue they need yeah. to be to perform yeah. and going into a match, and everyone's different. Like some of them like to be fatigued going into a match because that's what they like to they like to function on yeah they need to feel the the, the adrenaline and cortisol going to a match that's probably by that 10k before yeah, <laughs> like a match. yeah. So, so but I think it's the way you get it right yeah, there are many ways to get it so French contrast is one of the ways yeah. where you actually bring up cortisol and adrenaline levels really fast and the more blocks you have the higher the adrenaline and cortisol levels which without any of the neg- negative uh, or the downsides of running 10k yeah no, for sure it's fairly simple. I think. I think maybe some people, like people from the outside, maybe think, "Geez, you must be doing like so much, like yes. so crazy, like what are you doing?" But I think if you like, you look at this uh, the system that we run. I, th- I think it's fairly, you know, element not elementary, but it's basic, but it's um, it's robust. It 
you know, it, we do everything, the basics really well, I think. And that's... Ultimately, that's the, what it comes down to. Yeah. Your, uh, your understanding goes to a certain point where you know that everything is, is in the basics. Mm. And the simpler you keep it, the more executable it is. And ultimately, if it's executable, it's usable. And if it's not, then yeah, it's a lot more work than it's worth. And the more mastery you have with, with these variables as well. Exactly. Right? Yeah. When you're handling a team of 60 people, it can't really be complex. No, exactly. You want to you wanna sub it down to, like we said, certain metrics that are actually going to help you inform your program. Because yeah. otherwise, you're just collecting data for the sake of collecting data. And we do have all the data, but again, we report quite narrow. Right. Um, to make conclusive, more conclusive um, in, in decisions around it and, and actually give coaches something that they can use mm. because um, coaches are always wary of sports science and that sort of thing. So if you start <laughs> data dumping on them, yeah. no, no coach really likes yeah. that. So. It's only once they see that the, the game has changed and they once they see the effects of the training and then they'll, they'll have a buy-in and then you can go to talking, okay, fine, you know, these are the numbers that, you know, exactly. has, has shown correlation between performance or, or wins. But yeah, I think the biggest, though, the, the initial part is getting the trust off the coach. Yeah. And for him to see that the players aren't getting slow, they aren't getting fatigued, they aren't breaking down. And then that relationship actually builds into getting leeway into tactics, kind of getting a, getting a chance to program around the tactics, him bringing you in, in the tactical plan. And that makes all the difference in the world, I guess. Yeah, 100%. And like, it took a long time, but in the end, both Robs and I were on the bench now for quite a long period of time. And I think that also helped us understand the game better, but mm-hmm. us understand what the coaches required from the players, what the players were thinking coming off the pitch and all those sort of things. Um, and, and it just shows that the relationship does build over time once there's that trust. Um, what you mean? I'm sure also um, one of the things you were talking about, the buy-in aspect, yeah, collecting all that subjective data from so many athletes mm. must have been quite a challenge and getting yeah. that as a, a kind of as a habit to do. A few messages to remind them to something <laughs> like that every, every so often. Um, I, I, I'm really good at making athletes feel guilty. I, I, like I said in the beginning, I'm not a shouter, but I like giving that disappointed look or that disappointed comment and I like they feel really bad and with girls that works really well. Um, but like any team, I think, yeah, you got to every now and again you haven't submitted your data. Um, so. Yeah, find a way to automate the process. I mean, you still have to follow up, I'm sure. But you'll find a way to at least push out uh, the process so that at least the logging of the data was faster or, so you're or less, less uh, mechanical work for you all. From like a back-end? So once From you a back-end. Data. Yeah, to basically prompt uh, the prompt the question that you want to ask one once they fill it. Is there a way to, that you'll use to automate it? That made the whole sample collection uh, process smoother or faster. Um, yeah, well, I, think, I mean, it's it's all app based, but right. it's done through Google, okay, uh, cool. Google Forms and Google sure, Sheets, sure. pretty much. Yeah. So it's again very simple, but uh, it allows us the opportunity to collect the data that we need, and then once you've got the raw data, it's all done through Excel at the moment. Sure. Um, and then in Excel, we've obviously automated as much as possible to still be, uh, we can still play around with it and change mm-hmm. it, but mm-hmm. it's just a few clicks here and there to change the date and whatever, okay. and you can then produce your report. So, yeah, from once you've got the raw data to producing the report, I think we've automated as much as we can, can through Excel, yeah. 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 We're looking to go more into sort of 
uh, R and Power BI and all that sort of yeah. stuff to try and just get a little bit more from the data. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that you'll have that data archive mm. of five years, yeah. I think R and Python will really open up and yeah. can represent that data as well. I think ideally, yeah, sorry. I think ideally you need someone on the ground dealing just with the data to give us the feedback, sure. um, to make it work really well. Sure. But in the end, it was what it was. So um, we had to make the process, and it actually helped me because I was doing the study at the same sure. time to really in, dive into the data and get the first principles of the data, understanding everything, and making sure it's all done. Um, but ideally, you need someone to you need handle someone that. Who handles because the entire programming part of it. It's like my favorite days in the week are non-GPS days where I don't have to look at GPS data and download GPS data and sub GPS data and whatever it might be. And so we try specifically also like okay, gym days. It's normally a standalone day with no hockey, so then that's my non-GPS day. It's like really. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I've quite enjoyed through, um, although it's tedious, but through actually like working with the raw data on a daily basis, you get to, there's more context to the data that you eventually produce. Um, and yeah, you, you get to understand trends that certain players, you know, how they respond. So if I'm only looking at the output, I might not understand that output compared to what I do because I understand what the raw data has been like. So I quite enjoyed that sort of process of actually diving into the data, the raw data as well. Yeah. But then having a little bit more context to what the output is. What's actually going on. What's actually, you're, what you're actually producing. Yeah, so. so is that a custom app that is built? Yeah, we just used, uh, we're very good at finding anything free. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Google, Google Glide. Tech? Google Glides. Okay. Google oh, Glides. Yeah. So yeah, we just created the app on Google Glide. Um, and then it works pretty much Google Sheets. And then right. a row is a whatever, a tab and a... This new sheet is a new whatever, whatever. Right, 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 right. Um, but it works really well, and uh, and you can actually have a chat on it. Also, we're just using the free version, but yeah, the paid yeah. version is really strong. I think. Yeah, I think yeah, for sure. It's like it works well. I upload all my reports there now, and you guys already got your um, Google Glides, uh, Google Sheets going, so yeah. it will really help quite a lot. I think. And then Google you can Glides, you said, Google Glide, yeah. yeah. Um, so once you've got your sheet sorted then yeah. the other it's easy i mean it works exactly like an app yeah um, something we'll definitely look at because that's something that again we're we're in a similar point where we've got yeah. tons and tons of data from all the different departments that are there and now we're looking at how can we assimilate all that information to start yeah. making sense of yeah because uh, the number of data points are i think we've got a, a lag in 50 plus okay. data points over the last four or five years from different from different systems yeah, yeah. So yeah, and the way athletes are now, they love their phones. So having an app gets buy in, you just upload it, they click on it, they get the reports. So yeah, it's also a lot about giving them the uh, giving them a sense of what is going on, and hence they buy in a lot of them prepare mentally. They feel like the multiple touch points also make a big effect in uh, you know the the fact that you are constantly asking them what's going on. Yeah. You, you care, you feel you're actually invested in them. Uh, this is just another way of actually prolonging the number of touch points. And I think that's key with data. I think a lot of times in sports science, like science, science, we're really scared to share share the data with athletes. Right. Whereas I feel you really have to to get their buy-in. And I think if you're doing testing and they're not seeing a report from the testing, sure. like they start like, why are we doing this? They're not in the testing. Exactly. They're not, in the exactly. they're not involved. Um, right. Same with the wellness reports and stuff. They don't see the final report that I sent to the coach, but... I still discuss everything with them. Sure. Same with body composition, whatever it might be. 
it's open book and they know the terms and this is how it is. I yeah. upload the report to the app and the team can see the reports. And there's no secrets between the team or the individuals. I know some people really like to have, okay, only you must see your data and yeah. all that sort of thing. But I think if you've got trust in the team, then it, it, it does create a bit of a better environment. It's the environment that you build exactly. around in the language that they're using exactly. that makes it okay for everyone to share. And since you've built a shared team around yeah. sharing, I think it only makes sense that everyone you know. Creates a bit of competition as well. If I see, if I yeah, see I'm sure the pushback created a lot of competition. Yeah. Um, in terms of driving intent? Uh, I certainly absolutely did. All the guys for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just the difference, like, you know what it's like. You go you go and do a trap bar squat and you just do this, you know. Yeah. But if you, as soon as you put the band on and you have a, a number there and you say reach one, they, Jesus, it's competition. <laughs> and <laughs> you can put the leaderboards on as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, make, make things a lot more interesting. The same with GPS data. So we're talking about the live data and hitting certain thresholds in a certain thing. So other players, I'm sure Rob will have to come check their data and, <laughs> and uh, they know they need to say, for example, a thousand high-speed meters or uh, high-speed running meters. In the session, they'll come after the session. Oh, I only got 500, and they know they're going to have to do top ups afterwards. They're not happy with themselves. <laughs> and they actually start running more in, in the, the in training the and they actually put more effort in the training because of that. And the laptop's just there. I don't give them feedback. They come and check themselves how much have I done now. Um, and then some players, if they hit their thousand, they really give the other players a little bit of a rev because, <laughs> oh, you're going to have to go run now. <laughs> and they can, don't have to run. So I think these these things are, and it's not nothing new. I think a lot of teams do it. It just yeah. creates that environment of a little bit of a competition and um, intent again. That was actually like um, a positive way to use data to actually have actionables rather yeah, than exactly. just data is data unless it means something. Yeah. And again, with... With coaches, I think what they're worried about sports science is that and data is that we're trying to limit training, whereas I think it should be the opposite. We want to see, okay, we can probably do more. And I think we've created that environment where, and hockey has also taught us that, is that the athletes' load um, tolerance is way higher than I ever thought athletes could be because we train a lot <laughs> and they play a lot and they run a lot and they're just so robust. But again, it's how you get to that point that's important. Um, and yeah, I think other sports can probably learn a lot from hockey players and how much they actually train and play um, from a low tolerance perspective. What are the benchmarks that you would keep for hockey? I mean, men and women are obviously different. What are the benchmarks that you would keep for hockey that they need to achieve this in a week and this in a month? Or cutoffs? Uh, from an on-pitch perspective? Or from an on-pitch perspective as well as, like even track bar deadlift, there's a point to which there is a benefit to it. And then twice, I mean, most sports look at 1.5 or 2 times the body weight. You'll look at that as a cutoff or you're not going to go to that, you're just looking at velocity and uh, speed of the bar and progress yeah. on that. Um, I, from an on-pitch perspective, it's I, I just base everything off the game. Yeah. So it'll be like, and it obviously depends on how long the phase of training is, but generally it's a relatively short period of training. So like, on a, say, as an example, on a speed day, I'm trying to hit certain targets on that day, which are based off their individual match data. Mm -hmm. So like that creates a benchmark. So like when I'm saying with the high speed running meters, we know sure. that for them to handle the match demand, they need to be hitting 500, whatever it is, 500 yeah. sprint meter distance in a session. So then we've exposed them to a single match demand. But then over a week, we've got sort of um, thresholds that they need to hit because that's based off their game, data, game demands. Um, and then over a training phase or over a two-week period where we're really trying to expose them to tournament demands, um, each individual will have their threshold based on their, their tournament data over a period of time. 
So I think that's how I use threshold. It's not necessarily like um, they need to, I don't know. Like I track the, the strength stuff relative. So are they at 1.5 or are they at 2 times body weight? But uh, I don't know. It's there, I've got it, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily inform anything. Sure. With the velocity-based stuff, I do want them to be trying to hit a certain velocity. Um, so again, that creates a kind of a benchmark because yeah. if you can't hit one lifting 100 kgs on a deadlift, then you know we need to maybe try and get you there. Yeah, um, maybe reduce the weight. Yeah, and go through the whole process. But yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Like I, I don't actually really use. Uh, you look at normative data because you need to understand. Okay, there's a threshold where you need to be sure. as, a, as a hockey player. But then because we've got so much data over a period of time, you then just comparing that individual to themselves yes. over a period of time. So, um, okay, for sure, when we came in, we need the players to be at a certain standard. They've crossed that standard. Now it's all about just seeing whether they can keep improving based on their individual data over sure. a period of time. Yeah, no, I, agree. I don't think there's any absolutes. I think mm -hmm. we like depends on the phase of training again. Um, what especially on field stuff, what sort of distances and high speed and sprint efforts that we need to um, hit. Um, and again, like Rob said, I think initially when I came in is that I understood what international hockey needed to, um, what sort of standards the players needed to hit. Um, but over time, once we had achieved that, you have to move on to the next thing. So what I used to do with the players is set them goals specifically for their individual. And um, so smallest workout change is what I used for their strength training testing, for example. Um, and if they're X, then smallest worthwhile change for the next testing is going to be Y, and this is what I expect you to hit on that grid. Um, and I'll use that more later on once they've achieved the normative range in general um, international hockey, and then we'll become more individualized and they get their reports and they know, okay, we're running yo yo today, so smallest worthwhile change, I need to hit 19 or whatever it is. So that's what their goal is for that session. So I don't think any absolutes, but from a Aerobic perspective, like I think hockey players need to, for female hockey players specifically, 18 is a good cutoff point uh, yeah. as an average. Mm -hmm. um, and then strength would be, I think it's very individualized for strength, to be honest. Yeah. I think it's more force velocity based rather than average. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, relative is really important, like you said yeah. already. Um, again, a lot of our work is on pitch, so are they able to cope with those demands is the primary focus. Yeah. It seems like your main key variables you're looking at is looking at the things like if your meters per minute is increasing, if you're able to get more of those high intensity sprints, uh, then you know that, that, that that's your markers rather than maybe the amount of weight that you're lifting. Yeah, like so the, the, the intensity rating versus match is probably our probably most important, important. Um, variable. And then also over time, as you build up with your small-sided games, so say for example, you're four before, and you're playing three minutes and you're playing three games, what is the what is the decrease over that time? And then when you're playing six games, when you're playing eight games, whatever it is, what is the variation between each game that you're playing? And I think if you can see that you're actually not decreasing too much, or if you're um, seeing a reduction in their intensity and that over those periods of time, then you're probably hitting your mark because yeah. that's more sports specific as such. I think. Yeah, I mean, I can see over a period of four years, our, our overall or average match intensity over that period of time has increased massively. So it shows me that there's an improvement in what actually counts, you know what I mean? So um, obviously the whole process it builds up to being able to do that. But I think if we can see that what actually matters is improving, then yeah. for me that's the main thing. Um, <laughs> I think we went into like 
a lot of the specifics in terms of what you guys have done um, and the SNC technical based stuff. But also, I mean, I, I think it'd be great to like sort of dive into the your favorite failures as individuals or as a team. I mean, over the I'm sure over the course of these five years, there've been a lot of like challenges, and maybe you know you've learned a lot from that. I mean, I guess now that we, we kind of like talk all, a lot about the success that you guys have sort of given this team over the last four years, but what were some of the like failures that you all faced? I mean, or failures that you all kind of went through as individuals or as a team over this period of time? Um, individually, I think we spoke about China earlier, and I think I would. Going back, I think I'll do things a little bit differently because it was my first stint overseas and um, learning about different culture and possibly understanding the culture better and maybe giving a little bit more rope for them to do their 10Ks or whatever it is that they might do because um, in the end it had to be, a, a, it's, it was a decision, okay, well, let's part ways because it's not working like they want it to work. Um, I've always said I don't want to sell my soul to something that I don't believe in 100% and I didn't believe in their process either. Um, so I think that's also important as a strength and conditioning coach or performance coach is that you've got certain philosophies philosophies, and you're going to come across management and staff that don't have those philosophies. So do you just go with the ride or do you either effect change or do you leave that system? And at that point, I it was we're going to part ways yeah. so I think that was probably my biggest failure from a understanding their culture and what they thought they required would I have done it differently to a certain extent I think I should have done it differently um, I do think they required what we what we envisioned but possibly the process on getting their buy-in for that should have been different um, I think we got the players buy-in but we didn't get the local coaches buy-in as much and they had the, all the power Okay. Um, so yeah, I think from a failure, my individual failure perspective, that would probably be where I am at. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I like that it's termed favorite failure because I think um, failure is always an opportunity to learn, obviously. So I think for me, it's more of like just maybe smaller failures on a more regular basis, mm -hmm. to be honest. So just reviewing individual sessions where um, I've planned to do a certain warm-up and I've envisaged that it's going to go you know, a certain way and it just doesn't go that way right. for whatever reason. And then you're just reviewing that and you know, just getting better on, on a daily basis and more consistent. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't really think of like one big uh, incident like as a failure, but I can think of heaps daily failures that are contributing to a continuous growth. Um, what I might say is the decision that I've just made, although it's not a failure at the moment, it's a risk. Um, but I think it could, you know, it could be something, something positive, something really positive could come from it. Um, and yeah, it's an opportunity to, um, you know, test myself. I think just sorry, just on a on a team uh, perspective, um, I think our failure if you want to term it that but our loss against australia at the olympics was one of my favorite learnings from a team perspective because um yeah we got hammered seven one so it's a huge loss and you've gone into the tournament with a huge amount of expectation to to medal and 
suddenly in your second game you've lost 7-1. So there was like a lot of external pressure. Um, but the way that the team sort of responded to that failure was was unbelievable. And I think it actually helped us, to be honest, um, to get to where we actually did get to. So I think without that failure, that early in the tournament, it could have been a different outcome. So for me, I think that's probably one of my favorite failures as a team because there was so much learning that happened from that single event that's going to stay with that team for a very long time. And mine from the team perspective was also in the Olympics. I think, like I said earlier, is that we lost the first three games of the Olympics and it came down to South Africa's game and Ireland's game. We had to win both. Um, and by that time, we had no, as staff, I don't think we had many answers on what we can do different to try and get us to win the game. And it took the players to call a meeting and decide what they're going to do. And that was really cool to see that they decide, okay, look, Coaches, coaching staff have done all they can. They can't play the game for us. So it's time for us to step up and take responsibility. And in the end, that's what helped them, I think. And once the players can make that sort of decision, I think it's really important because it become, comes down to them um, making that decision that, okay, we're going to win um, and we have to do everything to win that game. And then, yep, the next two games were do or die and beat South Africa. And then we go into Island game and score in the last few minutes to go through to the knockout stages um, just shows the, the difference in the progress of the team over time because I think if we go back six, seven years ago in those situations India would not have qualified. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you also mentioned that you worked in JSW for a couple of months, mm -hmm. for 10 months. So what does that system make? How is that different? Yeah, so I was head of SNC there for 10 months or so um, and it, like every private institute that's starting out, it, it was very young. And for me, the frustration there was when the facility was taking time and that was uncontrollable. There was no one could control that. That's the way it happened. There was um, some structural issues. Um, but I, what I did like is reaching out to other SNC. So we got two uh, English guy and a Scottish guy that came in and learning from them, um, understanding what their requirements are and leading a team of a multidisciplinary team because we had obviously physios and SNCs and whatever it might be. Um, and also getting to work with some of the other of India's best athletes. So at that point, I was very lucky because um, Neuroj was there, so he had an injury, so we were working with him. Vinesh had just come back from the Olympics and she had the knee injury, so we got um, going to work with her. Gita and her sister were, and um, Babita were there also, so got to work with them and then various other aspects. And that, that was quite nice. And I liked that we spoke about the diversity earlier is working with different athletes, different um, sporting codes, different genders and different personalities. Um, and that actually helped me a lot understand a bit more about India and what sort of culture I need to work around. And then that helped me go into this, this process. So it was a really good learning curve for me from an Indian perspective. Um, when the hockey... Um, opportunity came I just felt that that's going to give me a bit more exposure to bigger tournaments sure. um, it was a tough decision again because I really enjoyed working with these athletes because some of the best athletes in India um, but I just felt the hockey was going to give me the best exposure it was also again a risky decision because um, all I had heard about the hockey team was that they're really badly conditioned they're not going to in good they, they need a lot of work but again I think that's something you need to make a decision on okay you're going to a job either to take a team that's low and try and get them better um, or you're taking a really high position that you're going to be overseeing things or whatever it might be. And at that time in my career, I felt that I needed to take a step with a team that can have 
um, good progress um, and it has got good potential and try and see what we can do with them. Um, so it was a tough decision to leave um, the athletes again at IAS. Um, but in the end, I think it was best. I'm like with all my athletes generally, I'm still in touch with, and when they need help, they'll drop drop a line. Um, but yeah, I think it was a good experience pre hockey um, there. All right, guys. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, yeah. what, uh, what yeah. can people contact you for? What kind of work can they collaborate with you for? And where can they reach you? Come on, time for a plug-in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like any work. So, like. Any, if you're wanting a program, performance program, if you're looking for um, educational things, if you just want to chat, yeah, you can get hold of us at apatrainingsystems.com. Um, we also got Twitter, APA Training Systems, and as well as Instagram. Um, also, APA Training Systems, nice and simple for everybody. Um, and then obviously our individual um, Instagram accounts as well. So it's Wayne Nomadet, um, Wayne Nomadet SA for uh, Instagram. Twitter, I think it's just at Wayne Nomadet. It's very simple. Um, but yeah, we we open to collaborate. We're open to yeah other people's side um, and just talk shop. All right, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks Thank a lot for coming over. Thank you, guys.